Now, as I said, our text is Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. And I'm sure you know that everybody wants peace, for the most part. Everybody wants peace, but um, uh, they can't find it. I don't know if you remember a, a song by Simon and Garfunkel from many years ago. It was entitled... Seven o'clock news slash silent night. And uh, what it was about was uh, Simon and Garfunkel with their sweet voices sang silent night and all the aura of peace uh, that emanates from that song uh, touches the listener. But as they sing silent night in the background, there's the seven o'clock news. And it's news about war and about conflict and about problems here and disturbances there. And as the carol progresses, uh, the, the announcer, the man who's announcing the news, the bad news, the seven o'clock news, as the song progresses, the, the newscast in the background just starts getting louder and louder and louder. And you know that eventually it's going to drown out the sound of the carol and the proclamation of peace. Everybody wants peace. We recognize that, but they can't seem to find it. And you won't find peace in the world. And the cries of trouble and the news of conflict drowns out any protestation that there can be peace in this world. I'm 65, and it was, it was sad to read again what H.G. Wells said. You're familiar with H.G. Wells, I'm sure. And he said, here I am, 65, still seeking for peace. Famous people. World-renowned people, people who have achieved great things. All over the world, people know your name, and you're celebrated. But I'm still seeking for peace, he says. Well, we understand. I mean, we're Christians. We know the Bible, and we know why people can't seem to find peace. And the Bible says on two occasions in Isaiah There is no peace for the wicked. And that's the biblical truth. There is no peace. There will be no peace. There can be no peace for the wicked. If you're not a Christian, there is no peace for you. You will not find peace in this world. You'll find distractions You'll find something that will take your mind off your trouble for a little while. You'll be able to drown your troubles for a time. But at the end of the day, we know this. There's no peace for the wicked. There's no genuine peace for the wicked. There's no lasting peace for the wicked. That's what the Bible says. But then... Into the darkness of that reality shines the light of this promise. Remember last week we talked about the fact that into the darkness of the fall, 
shone this light of that promise that God gave at the outset, a promise of a Messiah. And here, into the darkness of this unrest and this turmoil and trouble shines the light of a promise of peace. And we know then that that peace comes as a result of the sending of the Messiah promised in Genesis 3. The Prince of Peace, about whom we read in Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus alone brings peace of any real sort. And so we read in verses 3 and 4, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Uh, Sorry, verse 3, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord is an everlasting rock. Let me give you the context of this this great promise. Uh, This promise falls in the section of Isaiah, uh, which uh, speaks about really uh, two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And you remember that we, at least I hope you remember, we talked about the city of man and the city of God last week. I was saying to you that there are two kinds of people in the world, only two. There are those who are children of the devil and those who are children of God's. There are those who are of the line of Cain and those who are of the line of Seth. What Augustine called the city of man, unbelievers, and the city of God, the people who follow the Lord Jesus. And uh, Isaiah is telling us about the city of man and the city of God. And he says the city of man, unbelievers, they're destined for destruction. And you can read about this in, if you take time and read Isaiah 24 and Isaiah 25, And in Isaiah 24, you'll read about the fact that the earth is doomed for destruction and for judgment. And in Isaiah 25, you'll read about the fact that the city, now the city of man, the unbelievers, doomed for destruction and judgment. Perhaps in your Bible, you can already see chapter 25, and you look at verse 2, it says, For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. And so on and so on. The city of man, all who are followers of the devil, all who are uh, denying Jesus, all who are outside of Christ, destruction and judgment. Now, uh, which city is this? Is this, in chapter 25, is this Nineveh, that great wicked capital of Assyria that plays such a prominent part in Old Testament history? Or is it uh, perhaps Babylon, the prototype of of all wickedness in the Old Testament? Most commentators think that it's not a particular city. It's symbolic of all who are opposed to God. So the city of man. Those who oppose Christ, those who deny God, those who are outside of the Jesus, outside of the Lord Jesus, destruction, judgment. But then there's the city of God, and we read about the city of God in chapter twenty-six in verses one and two. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates. The righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. 
So this chapter then goes on to talk about the city of God. It talks about the way of the righteous in verse 7. It talks about the grace of God to the righteous in verse 12. It talks about the struggles that the righteous have in this world, 16 to 18. It talks about the, the hope of the righteous, verses 19 and following. Which city is this? Well, this is, uh, this is Jerusalem, but it's more than Jerusalem. This is the city of God. This is the place of salvation. These are the true people of God in every generation. And what we're going to do this morning is look at one particular blessing enjoyed by those who are citizens of this city. Those who live in the city whose walls are salvation. One of the blessings they experience, these people, is peace. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. That's... uh, one of the birthright aspects of those who live in the city of God. Now, this is a promise, and this is something that uh, is a blessing for all people who follow God, all people who are Christians in every generation. It's not just talking about Isaiah's day. It's not just talking about that generation. It's talking about any who belong to God in any generation. One commentator says, there is, if I may put it this way, a glorious indistinctiveness to this verse. Do you see it? The Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on God. To whom does him refer to? Does it apply to the individual Jews of that day? No, thank God, there is no limitation and no restriction here. Anyone of any age may wriggle into the indistinctiveness and enjoy the perfect peace that this promise delivers us. Well, that's what we're going to think about. We belong to this city. We are of the people of God, you and I who are Christians. And God promises us peace. We're going to think about the gift of peace and then the source of peace and then the condition of peace. First of all, the, the gift of peace. What does God promise us? What comes to us through the Lord Jesus? Well, first of all, there's the gift of peace with God. The gift of peace with God. The only people in the world who have peace with God are Christians. Everyone else is at war with God. For everyone else, the wrath of God abides over them. For everyone else, there is hostility in their hearts towards God. If you're not a Christian, there is no peace with God. You might protest that all is well between you and God. You might assert that all is well between you and God. But God says that's not the case. And God says you're in a state of war. And a state of war exists between Him and anybody outside of Christ. So if you're not a Christian, yours is a dangerous condition. It's a terrible state to be in. You cannot be at peace with God when you're wicked. You cannot be at peace with God when you're not a Christian. You see, Romans 8 says that the natural man, those outside of Jesus, they are hostile to God. 
The Bible says in John 3 that unbelievers, those who are not Christians, they are under the wrath of God. The wrath of God abides over them. It's just, it stays there. It's like clouds in the sky on, on stormy days. They abide in the sky. They're over us, threatening. Well, that's how it is if you're not a Christian. The wrath of God abides over you. And the Bible says that they're always running away from God. They're not at peace with God. They're not reconciled to God. They're not on good terms with God. No, they're running away from God. That's what they're like. They've all gone astray, each to his own way. Rather than drawing closer to God, they're running away from God. It might seem as if they're religious because they're looking for other gods, but they're running away from the true God. There's no peace with God. They're in a state of hostility towards God. But now with these people here in Isaiah 26, something's changed. Look at verses 1 and 2. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You see, now you have a strong city. And he has set up salvation as, as walls. Who's the he? Well, that's God. God builds this city. And its walls are walls of salvation. You see, this is a safe place. This is a place of security. This is a blessed place because its walls are salvation. But there's no one in the city at this point. And so the cry is, open the gates. Open the gates so that the faithful nations may come in. Those nations which have faith. Those nations that keep faith. And they can come in. So in they come. And they now begin to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of a city whose walls are salvation. Are they perfect? No, they're not perfect. You can read about that in verses 16 to 18. You know, they'll need to be chastised. They're not as of yet perfect. The tasks that they perform are not perfect by any stretch, but they are the righteous. Now the Lord has saved them, and the Lord has provided righteousness for them. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you indeed have done for us all our works. That's a language that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. He's provided everything. He has saved us by grace, by paying the price for our sins. He has provided righteousness for us by living perfectly according to the will of God. And so God provides this city. He has built these walls, these walls which are salvation. And those who enter into the city, they enjoy the blessings that come from being citizens of the city of God. And we read about that in Romans chapter 5. Now it's put in Romans chapter 5 in theological terms. Here it's a picture. In Romans 5.1, Paul says, Therefore, we have been, having been justified through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. In theological terms, he says, look, we've believed in Jesus once and for all. We've been justified. We've been declared not guilty. Our sins are forgiven. We're saved. We live in a city whose walls are salvation. And as a result of that, 
we have peace with God. No more war. No more wrath abiding over us. No more running away from God. No, we're at peace with Him. We've been reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5. Are you at peace with God? And I do believe, I know that most of us here have peace with God. We are at peace with God. And this is absolutely foundational. Every other blessing is contingent upon this. If you're not at peace with God, you can have no inner peace, no peace of God, about which we'll speak in a moment. If you think you have inner peace, when you don't have peace with God, you're delusional. And you're fooling yourself, and you're playing a dangerous game. This is foundational. Have peace with God. And the only people in the world, I said this a moment ago, the only people in the world who have peace with God are Christians. Therefore, having been justified through faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. That's the first thing. Then there's the peace of God. We're thinking now about this, this gift of peace. And... Um, the second part of it is peace of God. And this is really the focus of the text. The peace of God. The word peace means a wholesome fullness of well-being. It's talking about, uh, to put it in a picture, repose in the sunshine of God's presence and favor. It's talking about inner peace. That inner calmness, that inner tranquility, it's something I think we long for more and more. It's something perhaps at times we've experienced. And when we experience it, we long to experience it more deeply and more profoundly and in a more long-term way. And the child of God who has peace with God, can now experience inner peace, a tranquility, the ability to lay your head down on the pillow and sleep regardless of what's going on and regardless of the circumstances you face and regardless of what life is like. You can lay your head down on the pillow and you can sleep. It's wonderful to have a promise like that. I'm very conscious that... I, Sleep doesn't always come easy for me, so I understand if you find the same thing. But still, there's a promise here of that. That's available for a Christian. That can be the case for those of us who are in Christ. God promises peace to us. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. It's the kind of thing we read about in Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. In Psalm 3 and verse 5, we read this. I lay down and I slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. And for those of us who don't always sleep well, that's a wonderful thing to know, that we can pursue God, that we might have this. I lay down and slept. That's a wonderful thing. And I woke again. Why is that? Well, the Lord sustained me. The Lord granted me this peace. Or Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, 
make me dwell in safety. So where does his peace come from, this man? How is it that he was able to lie down and sleep? Well, he says, the Lord, uh, the Lord is the one who makes me dwell in safety. And so this is the gift of peace that is possible for us. Isaiah here says that this is peace, peace. You will keep him in peace, peace. In the original, that's what you have there. You have this repetition, which is a literary device that the Hebrews used in order to emphasize something. This is not just ordinary peace. This is not, you know, it's run-of-the-mill peace. No, this is, this is wonderful peace. This is profound peace. This is an intensified kind of peace. And we all want, I mean, just even peace. But he says, oh, the Lord will give you peace, peace. He'll give you intensified peace. Listen to Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, this is a Hebrew way of expressing emphatic peace. True and real peace. Double peace. Peace of great depth and vast extent. Well, we need peace of great depth and vast extent because we've got big problems. Uh, This is a troubled world we live in. And we, frankly, are troubled people. Even we who are Christians, we've got all kinds of struggles and all kinds of difficulties. We need substantial peace. God promises that to us in his word. Now the writer says, in other words, the promise offered is a peace sufficient for all that life throws at us. I mean, don't you want that? We know what life throws at us. And sometimes they come like tidal waves. Have you ever seen videos of the tidal waves that happen? And the most recent one, what? Oh, I can't remember the year, but the, in the Far East, the tidal waves that, that hit those countries, they even made a movie out of it, just horrendous and terrifying. These things come, the troubles in our lives come like tidal waves. He says, no, this is sufficient for all that life throws at us. What a wonderful promise. It, it, it does not offer a perfect life, or perfect circumstances, but a perfect peace in the midst of a difficult and trying situation. That's what God promises us. That's what God promises you. It's wonderful, you know, then, to think that Peter and Anna can read this verse and say, God promises you perfect peace in the midst of all that life can throw at you, in the midst of everything that you have to face. And the diagnosis comes, and the peace is given. Extraordinary. We need that because there are peace wreckers in our lives. There are those things that destroy our peace. You know, you're going along and you feel fine. You ever have this where you're just, everything's fine. The sun's shining. There's not a cloud in the sky. And then something happens. You know, like it's not a, even a big thing. And it's destroyed. <laughs> and you're all just in a state. There are things that seem to wreck our peace. What are they? Well, in some cases, it's people. <laughs> I remember Tom Smith years ago at one of our pastor's conferences talking on 2 Corinthians 12, and the thorn in the flesh. And he said, you know, some thorns have faces. Well, indeed. 
And so you see the face, and the peace goes out the window. That's all it takes sometimes. And God says, I can give you peace. Even when you come face to face, face to face, with the peace-wrecking face. And then there's um, circumstances, trials, and tribulations. Maybe it's the fact that somebody you love deeply is not saved. Or maybe it's, well, maybe it's a diagnosis. And maybe it's a disappointment. Maybe it's trouble. Maybe it's an enemy. But not just the enemy of your soul, but some human being. And God can give you peace. John Payton testifies to this. He faced the kinds of things we'll never face probably. He faced, well, he faced cannibals. And he and one companion of his were surrounded at one point by cannibals. None of these things can be aimed at us, and none of these things will touch us without the permission and control of a gracious Lord Jesus Christ. So, in the face of all kinds of circumstances, you can have peace. What about death? Not a philosopher, a psychologist by the name of Carl Jung. And he said that he had yet to meet a patient over the age of 40 whose problems were not somehow tied to his or her fear of death. And he's talking about people who are not necessarily Christians. But I know that Christians struggle with this as well. We have no reason to and no cause to, really, but we struggle with this as well. And sometimes Christians are as ardent in their fear of death. They're as ardent in their efforts to postpone death and preserve health. We're, we're afraid of dying. And the Bible's saying, I can give you peace in the face of that looming death. Henry Light, you know the hymn, Abide With Me. Henry Light, who wrote that, had an ongoing and an abiding fear of death. And in ministering to his own soul, he writes, Abide With Me. And then, when he comes to die, you know what his last words were? His last words before he dies are, Peace and joy. <laughs> and God can give you peace, you see, in the face of death. Richard Baxter, I'm studying Richard Baxter these days, and 
and reading about his studies uh, with regard to heaven. On his deathbed, his <coughs> testimony was this. He says, I have pain. There's no arguing against sense. I have pain. But I also have peace. I have peace. If you're a Christian, even the prospect of death need not be a peace destroyer in your life. God will keep you in perfect peace, even in the face of that. But remember, it's only Christians. It's only Christians. If you're not a Christian, well, there's no peace for the wicked, even in the face of death. And sometimes people who are dying who are not Christians, uh, they say they're at peace. They affirm that they're at peace. They say they're not afraid to die. But listen to uh, Thomas Watson. Watson says, if a wicked man seems to have peace at death, it is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but from the ignorance of his danger. What about desire? Sometimes the reason we don't have peace is because we're eaten up with all kinds of unmet desires. Oh, we want this, and we want that. And if, if we could have this, or if we could have that, well, you know, if I could just have that, I'll be at peace. If this were to work out this way, you know, I'd be really content. Even in the face of unmet desires, God can give us peace. Paul says, I learn to be content no matter what the circumstances. Whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full, no matter what the situation. And you and I can learn that as well. We can grow in this, this perfect peace that God promises so that no matter what our circumstances, this situation just isn't working out as we have and that situation has just gone south in a way that I never anticipated. I'm at peace. They, they didn't want that diagnosis. Peter signs off his email. We're at peace.
But you notice what the verse says about the source of peace. See? You keep him in perfect peace. I mean, you is all. Oh, see? And sometimes the Lord gives grace and you can hear this. God, that's your source of peace. Yah, Yahweh will give you peace. And there's a repetition there. Yah, Yahweh will give you peace. The first is a contraction of the second. So why does he say, Yah, Yahweh will give you peace? Well, just to emphasize, as one writer says, the union of the two names expresses the highest degree of God's unchanging love and power. His covenant name, Yahweh, speaks of God's unchanging love and power. So let me repeat the name so that you understand that this God can give you peace. Yah, Yahweh, who loves you and is full of power, this God can give you peace. And you need this God to give you peace because you have big problems. And you live in a fallen world. And this is a troubled existence. Oh, you need a great God to be able to give you peace in this world of great trouble. And that's what he's telling us. That's the source of your peace. And not only is he Yah, Yahweh, but you see verse 4, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. The Lord your God is the rock of ages. That's where a top lady got that line for his hymn. He's the rock of ages. This is a rock that can, you can cling to no matter how vehement the waves are that are lashing you. You can cling to this rock. This is a rock of ages. This is an everlasting rock. Your God is the rock of ages. And not only do you cling to the rock, but you know, ultimately that's not much hope. But that rock will cling to you. He's the covenant God. He'll never let you go. That's the source of your peace. The source of your peace is God. Peace comes to you when you trust in Him. The peace of God will be yours when you look to Him. Peace comes with a Godward look. Peace comes with a Godward look. Isaiah 40 and verse 9. In Isaiah 40, trouble is coming. The Babylonians are looming. There is just agony on the horizon. And what does God say to his people? What counsel does he give to them? Well, Isaiah 40, verse 9. Go up, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Says, uh, say, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And then what follows is this monumental description of the greatness of God. You see, verse 9 is pivotal. How are you going to face trouble. How are you going to have peace of God in the midst of all kinds of affliction? He says, behold your God. How are you going to have peace? Well, look at God. How are you going to have tranquility? Well, turn your eyes and 
Look to Jesus. The, the writer to Hebrews says, you people who are facing all kinds of affliction, how do you go through life? How are you going to know this peace that Isaiah promised? Well, he says, keep looking to Jesus. Behold your God. You will have peace with a, a Godward look. You see, Peter could walk on water when he was looking at Jesus. You'll be able to walk on water, metaphorically, when you look to Jesus. You keep your eyes on God when you turn to Jesus. You see, Jesus is, what did we see at the beginning? He's the Prince of Peace. You fix your eyes on Him. You focus your attention on Him. You'll know the peace of God. Well, the gift of peace, and then the source of peace, and then lastly now, the condition of peace. The condition of peace. Our text says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Well, think of the word stayed. If you want to know the peace of God. Now, you're a Christian now. Remember, this peace doesn't come if you're not a Christian. Please, I beg of you, don't go away thinking, oh, I can know the peace of God. Isn't that grace? Remember, it's to Christians. No peace of God without peace with God. To Christians, he says, stay your mind on God. The word stay means to, to lean. If I'm tired and I'm weary and I... It takes all the weight off to lean on this. Okay? Your mind is stayed on God. You'll be sustained by Him. You, you fix your eye, you fix your attention, and you'll be established. You, you stand on this foundation. You rest your weight upon it. He's saying if you rest your weight upon God, you'll know the peace of God. The NIV puts it this way, those who trust in you, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is, is trusting in you. And the New Living Translation has a lovely paraphrase, really. It really gets to the heart of the matter. It says, uh, they'll know peace whose thoughts are fixed on you. You want peace. Fix your thoughts on God. Fix your thoughts on God. Well, what's involved with that? How do you go about fixing your thoughts on God? We all want peace. We're not fools. We want inner peace. How do I do that? Well, stayed on God. I want to be stayed on God. What does that mean? Fix your thoughts on God. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means pray. <laughs> it means to pray. It's as simple. This isn't rocket science. God's not thinking, I'm going to give them peace, inner peace. Where can I hide this? How can I make it difficult for them to get peace? Let me put it, let me make it a puzzle inside an enigma. No, he's not. He's making it very simple. You just pray. Pray to God. Just turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Psalm 91, 91 verses 1 and 2. 
He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now notice those two words. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Now the word abide means to remain, uh, to lodge, uh, to spend the night, to rest. Here's a weary traveler. Not driving in a car, he's walking along the street as they did in those days. He's a, he's a weary traveler, he's bone weary. He comes to an inn, he comes to a place where he finds lodging and he goes in and he stays there for a while and he rests, he lies down on a bed and he's at peace. Now, Don Carson writes, time. Time alone with God, quiet before God, that is what we need. Our lives are so rushed that we begrudge a three-minute quiet time, and then we wonder where God is. But the psalmist is right. He who dwells will rest. He who dwells in the shadow of the Almighty will abide, will rest, will be able to lie down in peace in the shadow of the Almighty. How do you get peace of God? Well, you pray. You pour your heart out to Him. You spend time with Him. You look to Him and, and you talk to Him. And you unburden yourself to Him. And you express your heart to Him. Dr. Carson continues, he says... When, when was the last time you prayed explicitly and at length over the things that worry you and trouble you and plague you? Do you take them out and recount them to God one by one, laying your burden on Him? That's what you do. And there are many times, and you know, you, you pray, oh, Lord, help me. But there's, there's still trouble there. And there are all kinds of specific things that weigh upon you and disturb you. And, and then you begin to pray specifically. And the Lord begins to lift those particular burdens. And you begin to experience this peace. And you remember what the psalmist says. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will not permit the righteous to be shaken and to be moved. But you cast your burdens upon him. You lay them upon him. And Peter picks that up. And he quotes that in 1 Peter chapter 5. Because we were told in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you Christians, you believers, lay your burdens on the Lord. Cast them upon him. He'll sustain you. And he won't allow you to be shaken and to be moved. So there's prayer pray. And the other thing involved in this is study. It's filling your mind up with God. It's focusing your mind on God. You see, you fix your attention on the Lord and peace will come, but it it involves study. It involves filling your mind up with who God is. It involves filling your mind up with what God has promised. So you fix your attention on Him. 
and you fill your mind up with Him. It's what Hebrews 12, 2 is talking about, looking to Jesus. You study the Scriptures about the character and the attributes of your God. And you study the promises of God in the Scriptures. What has God promised to you? He's promised peace. He's promised strength. He's promised His presence. He's promised purpose. He's promised encouragement. He's promised the accompanying fellowship of the saints. He's promised ultimate victory. He's promised glory when the battle is done. He's promised victory despite your weakness. He's promised that He will protect you. He's promised, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so the more you fill your mind up with the wonder and the glory of who God is and all of the splendor of His attributes, and, prom- and the more you fill your mind up with this seemingly infinite variety of promises that He gives to you, the more you fix your mind on that, the more you begin to, frankly, just calm down. You just begin to relax. It's like Spurgeon when he says he is full of anxiety and full of worry and troubled. And then the verse came to him from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. My grace is sufficient for you. And he says, he says oh, I started to laugh. He says, I, I said to God, well, I should think so. Of course your grace is sufficient for me. And he says, well, now, He said, be great believers. He says, little faith will bring your souls to heaven. Great faith will bring heaven to your souls. It will bring the peace of God to your souls. So this this is how. This is the way. This is the condition. Fix your eyes on the Lord. Fill your mind up with who He is. And fill your thoughts up with what he's promised, and peace, perfect peace, will be yours. So you say, okay, well, I'm going to do that today. And then you enjoy, well, wonderful peace for the rest of the day. Well, then Monday comes along, and just, well, you meet that thorn again, and your peace is destroyed. Well, what happened? Well, look, this is a battle. This is a walk. This is not a one-time thing. Uh, This is a walk of faith. And we're going to stumble, and then we pick ourselves back up again with the Lord's help, and we press on. So tomorrow afternoon, after you had a little dust up with conflict in the morning, you fix your eyes on the Lord again. And you just keep going, and you enjoy renewed peace. It's going to be a battle. It's a long walk. It's a marathon. It's not a little sprint. But the promise is there, and it's true. May God bless it to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, how gracious you are to send the Prince of Peace into this war-torn world so that we might have peace with God and that we might enjoy as a result the peace of God. Oh, we thank you, praise you for your goodness to us and pray that you'll bless your word to all of us and suit to us the particular blessings that we need. We ask for Jesus' sake.
Amen.